Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, I was inspired as I was talking about last week, uh, meeting some people this summer, um, one of whom is a 93-year-old scholar from uh, India uh, named Nagindas, who I got to spend some of my birthday with and uh, debating the Yoga Sutra, um, which, you know, kind of killed one part of the party. But for us, we were pretty... And we were eating chocolate cake at the same time for three hours. Um, uh, And just uh, being re-inspired by the depth of that text, and also just how confusing it is, and how I think when you approach some of these old maps or textbooks from um, a kind of intellectual or scholarly perspective, um, something's really lost. Um, because it's important to understand that the reason why a lot of these old manuals were written um, was to sort of help people along. Um, It's like, you know, going to a city and not having a map, which is really wonderful for a while, and then it's also nice to know about some of the history of those particular streets or some of the caverns below the streets um, or some of the great forests nearby and who might have lived there. And uh, in a way, it's good to treat these texts not as holy documents. When you drop it, you don't have to kiss it when you pick it up. Um, But really as a textbook, a manual, something to pick up and really work with and struggle with. And there are really so few opportunities, I think, to combine um, a committed practice where there is some practice and a very in-depth study of this text, um, or any text for that matter. And so I say this because I want to encourage uh, you to think of this room as a collaborative learning project and not as uh, some kind of hierarchical um, situation where I know something about the text and you don't, and so you have to swallow what I say as accurate. Um, And so I hope that if we go line by line or word by word, we can debate a little bit. And I'll try to be as non-technical as possible. Um, But at the same time, once in a while, we'll stick to the Sanskrit terms because the English language is really quite poor at describing subtle mental states. And uh, I think especially for those of you that have a lot of you in here who have training in psychology, you'll see how um, just profoundly precise um, Patanjali is in his description of how the mind works its function, 
And I also have an agenda um, aside from this, which is I feel that so often this text has been taught in um, communities of Brahmins where it's taught as a non-householder practice that the teachings of samadhi and the teachings of awakening that Patanjali promises are taught in a way that's geared mostly to men, mostly who have an empty nest and who can just focus on practice. Um, And I think that this is a misreading of the text. And so um, I really believe that this is equally a householder text and a text for people wandering in forests and um, sitting, uh, meditating at the base of trees. Um, And it was never a text that existed in monasteries. It was never a text that was institutionalized. Um, You don't find it in monasteries uh, taught anywhere. So there's a little background. And uh, I hope that as we get into it, it will come alive at this time for you in your life, in your gender, in your lifestyle, and so on. Although it will give you a hard time with your identification with your lifestyle and your gender and your occupation and so on. And that's what it's designed for. And um, sometimes we'll learn in Sanskrit and sometimes we'll learn in English, if that's okay. Because Sanskrit's wonderful. And for those of you, um, is Aaron in here? For those of you who are linguists and poets, uh, it's good to learn some Sanskrit because it, it just, you can see the richness of the English language. Um, in its historical reference. So, if you want to follow along, um, the little chant book has the first three or four lines, I think, and feel free to, to follow along. And I think the translation that we used, Grant, is Chip, is Chip, it's Chip Hartramp's translation. Um, but I'm going to sort of offer my own as we go along. So the first line in this text is um, Atta Yoga Anushasanam. And the word Atta uh, literally means now. And it's actually quite an interesting word to begin the seminal text on yoga that now, or present experience, is what starts off this text. And the word ata is really interesting because um, phonetically, it actually, according to Sanskrit um, rules, um, the first sound that you can actually make as a human being is... uh, Want to try it together? Okay, so almost close. Get really low down. This is called guttural. Get really, really low down with no prana in it. No energy. Until we sound a little bit like frogs. And if you add a little bit of prana to it, so there's alpa prana, which is like... But you add a little bit of prana to it and you get... And, and if you travel around or you learn other languages, usually they start like this, right? The alphabet usually begins up, up. Um, and in English, for some reason, B comes next. 
which like phonetically doesn't make any sense. Um, in Sanskrit, the, the rules of how the letters follow one another have to do with the shape of the prana as it comes out your mouth. So actually, if you were to go to the very last sound you could make, it's the end of ha. But if you went the word doesn't work. So what they do is they interrupt the first sound and the last sound with a dental sound, which is So ata is like the uh, most complete word. Yeah? Because it goes from here, a-ta. And that's the end. Ta. You can't make anything after that on the exhale. Ta. So ata which is phonetically kind of like the first and last movement you can make, also means now. Yeah. And most people then translate this sentence, uh, scholars do anyways, as now we're going to study yoga. Which it seems, if you treat this as a philosophy text, if you are reading Heidegger or Kant or Foucault or whomever, nowadays we always hear the beginning of a text says, now this is what we're going to study, Right? But that sort of misses out on this as a textbook for a practitioner, where the line could also be translated as now is yoga. Now is the teaching of yoga. Not now we are going to study yoga, but in present experience is contained all the teaching of yoga. In present experience. And there's always a um, philosopher who always uh, objects and says, well, you can never not be present. Right? I mean, even when you're distracted, you're still presently distracted. And I would say that if you're treating this as a manual, a kind of how-to of meditation, that doesn't fly. Because when you're actually being asked to concentrate on an object of meditation, you know if you're present or not with that object. And I think as we go on through the next paragraph, Patanjali lifts five ways the mind fluctuates around an object. So for those of you that already have this perspective of we're always present no matter what, just to hold that in suspense until we get to the end of the paragraph. Um, and a footnote for those of you who are a little bit on the academic side. Um, I read the Yoga Sutra as a series of paragraphs, but that's not traditional. Like, there's no texts where he writes in paragraphs. But there was a woman uh, named Barbara Stoller Miller who was a scholar. Um, and when she uh, was dying, she had cancer. And when she was dying, which I think was about uh, just over a decade ago, she, during her illness, she translated the Yoga Sutra. And one of the great um, things she added to the text was she divided it into paragraphs, because she was a poet. And it really helps the text. So we're going to look at the lines and groupings. But for those of you who are more academic, I don't know if you're really allowed to do that. Chip does it too, based on her translation, but it's not so traditional. We're so radical. We're going to make paragraphs. <laughs> so, um, you can't translate yoga yet because he hasn't really defined what that terms mean. 
terms mean. And um, anushasanam, shas just means to instruct. Or a teaching. Any questions about this? Because I want to use these first two lines together. You know, you know, when you said the last bit, when you said teaching, uh-huh. you mean teaching as a kind of, because the other word you've written is exposition. Or exposition. Um, so you're talking about, do you understand it as being teaching as a kind of um, a showing and listening thing? Yes. But the, the teacher is present experience. So it's not suggesting that there is a guru or that Patanjali is a sage that is going to impart something to you. And uh, I like that way of beginning. We're not prostrating to start. We're not having to adopt a belief system. We're being told that present experience is um, really the core teaching of yoga. What a relief. The problem is, is most of us are actually not, we forget We forget, right? We forget about the moment-to-moment flow of life because we're so caught up in our ideas about how things should run and how everybody else should be. Our belief systems, or what uh, Patanjali calls pratyaya, which is uh, presented ideas. Presented ideas. And the interesting thing about this notion of presented ideas, instead of the English... now there's this, uh, this, we always use this term, core beliefs, you know, which makes it sound so static. But for Patanjali, our core beliefs are actually um, momentary and contingent presented ideas that sort of float up into awareness and float away, but are not like static parts of your personality, which is kind of nice. I had this experience today, actually, with my son is six, and so today was his first day of a uh, full, full day of school, first grade. He's only been going half days for the past couple of years. And it was so hard to get him to sleep last night because he was so nervous <laughs> about going for a full day. And um, the other thing we did today, which was new for him, is ride his bike all the way to school and back, which is quite far. It's across, this, across town. And... Uh, so we were riding to school today, and he was so nervous the whole ride, you know, because, um, you know, he's going for a full day. And so for him, the presented idea that was dominating everything that he was seeing was um, this notion of the full day, you know. And I said, well, it's just an afternoon. You know what the morning is like. I know, but it's a full day, you know. <laughs> And we all have this, right? Where you have a presenting idea that kind of dominates your experience. It's hard to see, see through it. And then we're riding along, and uh, the night before we were at our friend's house for dinner, and we, we were telling them about our route to school. And uh, so as a surprise to him, they put a big sign outside on their fence uh, on a blackboard saying, have a great first day at school, Arlen, which is my son. And a little picture of a bicycle on the side. He was so touched. I was so touched. And so we stopped. He took off his helmet. And we were looking at this, talking about how nice this was. Then he got excited to go to school. And then he started seeing all the kids riding their bicycles going to school and being excited for them that they might be going for their first day. 
And so it's interesting how this can happen, how we have a presenting idea that is so dominant and strong that's coloring everything in either a mode of attachment or a mode of aversion. And then another presenting idea shows up and transfigures the whole thing and can still color it in unhelpful ways. So it's interesting to notice how there's present experience happening always. It can't, life can't happen in another way. And yet it's colored by our mode of perception. And this is kind of what Patanjali's after. And so in the second sentence he says, um, and you can follow along, so atta yoga anushasanam, and then in the second sentence, he says, uh, this is his definition of yoga. Yoga, let's say it out loud. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. So yoga, the word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to yoke. It's where we get the word in English, yoke. And um, it means uh, to bring something together or to unite. It's a verb. But once the word is taken from the verb form into the term yoga, it doesn't mean to do anything anymore. So yoga doesn't mean to unite, which is, that's the common interpretation of yoga, is yoga means to unite the breath and the mind or the soul and God. But yoga is taken out of its verb form. So it refers to the fact that everything is already united. Everything is already intimately permeating every other thing. Everything's already interdependent. Um, so I like to translate the term yoga as intimacy because the felt experience of yoga is the feeling of being connected. And whether you define that as connected with something in yourself that's alive or connected with the natural world, connected with somebody else, um, these are all kind of still fragmented ways of talking about intimacy. I think yoga refers to a basic kind of intimacy, the way things are connected before our minds split things up into this and that and self and other and so on. So, uh, Vyas Houston, who is probably one of the finest now retired Sanskrit teachers uh, in the West, um, he, he taught me that when a word in a sentence ends with the same ending as the last word in the sentence, then they're synonymous, which I think is just the coolest rule. So, because yogaha, you'll notice a little dot under it, do you see under the A? Oh, I don't have it in front of me. Is there a little dot under the H? Under the H? Under the H? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that means that you take the ending and you add an extra breath to it. So instead of saying yoga, it's yogaha. Kind of like uh, samastiti has this. Samastitihi. Yeah? And so it has the same ending as nirodaha, which makes them synonymous. So you could actually translate that sentence as yoga is nirodha. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. so, so yoga, which we were defining as intimacy, 
is Nirodaha. So cool. What's Nirodaha? Nirodaha is related to Chittavriti. Whoa. Is this exciting or what? <laughs> okay. So, so um, ni, the word ni means to go into something. And Rhoda is the goddess of storms. So if you ever see, does anybody here watch the Weather Channel? No? It's the best channel. <laughs> yeah. Because it actually refers to nothing, really. <laughs> I did have a phase, I shouldn't tell you this. I had a phase where I was very depressed and I used to watch the Weather Channel and like imagine that they were talking about what was going to happen to me for the day. <laughs> so it was like internal weather patterns or something. Anyways. Um, so ni means to go in and uh, into and Rhoda is the goddess of storms. And one of the things we know about a storm that's spinning, if you ever see a tornado, is what happens at the center of the storm. It's still. And not only is it still, but the way a storm pattern releases itself back to calmness is from its center. Actually, the center of it starts pushing on the inside walls, and then the whole thing just releases, which is kind of a beautiful non-doing image, you know. And Rhoda is where we get the word in English radish or radical, which literally means to get to the bottom of something. So Nirodaha is actually to get to the bottom, to get into the roots of something um, in order to release it. Yeah. And what's obscuring intimacy in our relational lives and in our own minds is the chitta vrittis. Okay? So the, the word vritti means to whirl. Um, or if for those of you who practice yoga postures, any posture that has the word vritti in it uh, means a revolution. Yeah? So you take the pose and you revolve it and you'll find that word vritti in a lot of yoga poses. Um, parivrita trikonasana yeah so like turning the triangle revolutionizing the triangle um, and chitta is such a complicated word so I'm not going to define it too much tonight um, but let's just say for now that the word chitta means consciousness okay um, bands of consciousness different kinds of consciousness. And when the ear hears a sound, so there's an ear and a sound, and when the ear organ and the sound meet each other, you get ear consciousness. When the nose and the nose organ and scent meet each other, you have a moment of temporary nose consciousness. So that's for all five senses and the mind. When mind meets a thought, you get mind consciousness. Six different kinds of consciousness. In Western philosophy, we have one kind of consciousness. And we believe that because there's consciousness, the mind has thoughts. Because there's consciousness, 
the nose smells. But it, it, this isn't the same way of using the term. Here we have a more interdependent sense, and that consciousness is not steady, it comes and goes in moments. Right? And when there's a moment of consciousness, the chitta vritti, there's a, there's a fluctuation in consciousness. So consciousness is not flat, it's kind of fluctuating. And so vritti means uh, uh, a revolution. So you can think of it as like blips in consciousness. And um, sometimes, as many of you know, we were just sitting, and you know that trying to stay with the feeling of breathing, or even maybe right now as I'm talking, your mind is filled up with all kinds of ideas that actually distract you from uh, this. And that's just another chitta-vritti. Are we clear about what that, that means? Sometimes I translate chitta-vritti as the elaborations of the imagination. And in a sense, that's helpful, but it doesn't capture that this is not just happening in the mind up here, but, it's, but there's... There's fluctuations happening in all your sense organs. For those of you that are not used to meditating, for example, with your eyes open, the eyes do all kinds of weird things, fluctuating, getting used to settling. Yogaha chitta vritti nirodha. Any questions? Two sentences in one night? So when it's translated here as like stilling or cessation, like can all of that still be going on and then you can just go into the that like the hub kind of or that spot? Yeah. 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 So it's not like when it's just here it's like stilling or restriction, like that seems like it's really limiting. Yeah, so there are actually four kinds of neuroda. The first kind is called vritti niroda, which is um, when you're seeing these fluctuations. So let's say you're in your meditation practice, and just in the breath cycle, let's say, you can feel in the breath that there are fluctuations. And you don't do anything with it. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I feel my breath, and it's fluctuating a lot, the first thing I want to do is change it so it's smooth. But actually, if you leave it alone, you notice that holding back what you want to do with the breath, actually, so the word would be like abeyance, holding your, your desire to change it in abeyance, which is actually a kind of aversion, um, creates enough space for the breath to fix itself. And it does. It gets softer and quieter. Uh, it's kind of like homeopathic psychology, right? Yeah. So just like leave it alone. Yeah. So that's the first kind of nirodaha. D- does that relate to your your experience? But um, the way you described sort of like a tornado or this yeah. revolution, but within is the stillness. Yeah. So in the asana practice, if this fluid pattern of physical movement yes. is the spinning. And maybe, uh-huh. I don't know if it's an apt analogy, but yeah. then what would you feel like is that center of stillness? I don't think that he's talking about asana practice. I, I don't necessarily either, but when you yeah. describe the, maybe it's more a question of what 
you as an asana teacher would think about that than you translating let's let's teachers. suspend the question okay. until patanjali talks about asana okay because i think he has some interesting things to say about that but i would say that he's talking about such quiet forms of formal sitting mm. right now mm. not through the whole text but right now i think if you want to kind of penetrate what he's after he's talking about a very precise way of describing different things the mind does okay. so we'll hold your okay. your, your question um pratyaya nirodha is the second kind of nirodha which is um this comes later in the text but i'm just telling you now which is um presented ideas presented ideas um so when you have ideas that show up that dominate consciousness it obscures the possibility of real looking real insight um and we all know this right somebody's trying to tell you something that's hard to hear you know and your mind fills up with what a jerk they are and then you you can't actually you can't listen you can't hear it's like half my day is just working on that i don't know about you but i mean when you reflect at the end of your day about the quality of your listening you know you really see the chitabhutis in your face and hopefully you have people close to you who will tell you this because it's a bit hard to see on your own because we usually think that we're right because of our presented ideas yeah so um the third kind of nirodha is samskara nirodha so as some of you might know samskaras are the psychophysical holding patterns and i would say cultural also in our mind and body um and so when we're able to notice some of our holding patterns and at the same time not fall for them but still stay connected to what's happening in present experience that's called samskara nirodha what i want to stress here is that usually the term nirodha is translated as cessation put up your hand if you that was the if you originally learned yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind how many of you learned that i mean that's like the first thing you learn when you study <laughs> yoga for most of us it doesn't make any sense yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of your mind i mean if you didn't think like how would you be a contributing member of society and actually there is a scholarly stream that claims that patanjali is actually that this is a text about what happens at death <clears throat> and that he's just talking about the cessation of everything which is death which i think actually doesn't make any sense but we can talk about that as the text goes on um and the fourth kind is sarva nirodha which is complete nirodha which i trend sarva also means all it's usually translated as such complete focus that nothing is showing up but actually i think it means um everything um that can show up can be seen as just what's showing up in the same way that you can't stop what's showing up i mean i can't stop the sounds street car i mean parkdale 
You know, you can't stop that. And why would you want to stop that? In his wonderful guide uh, to yoga philosophy, The Yoga Matrix, Richard Freeman says, um, yoga chitta vritti nirodha basically means that all the chitta vrittis are sacred. And because they're sacred, your practice is just to leave them alone. And I really like that, that translation. May I read a poem? Um, this comes from Allen Ginsberg. Uh, if any of you have ever studied his thing, or just read his amazing revolutionary poem, Howl, this is the footnote to the poem, written after, actually, Howell. And if any of you hang out on YouTube, um, there's an amazing performance of this poem by Patti Smith at Allen Ginsberg's funeral that is worth checking out. Holy, 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 holy. The world is holy. The soul is holy. The skin is holy. The nose is holy, the tongue and cock and hand and asshole holy. Everything is holy, everybody is holy, everywhere is holy, every day is an eternity, every man's an angel, the bums as holy as the seraphim, the madman is holy as you, my soul, are holy, the typewriter is holy, the poem is holy, the voice is holy, the hearers are holy, the ecstasy is holy. Holy Peter, Holy Alan, Holy Solomon, Holy Lucian. Holy Kerouac, Holy Hunk, Holy Burroughs. Holy Cassidy, Holy the unknown buggered and suffering beggars. Holy the hideous human angels. Holy my mother in the insane asylum. Holy the cocks of the grandfathers of Kansas. Holy the groaning saxophone. Holy the bop apocalypse. Holy the jazz bands, marijuana, hipsters, peace, and junk and drums. Holy the solitudes of skyscrapers and pavement. Holy the cafeterias filled with the millions. Holy the mysterious rivers of tears under the streets. Holy the lone juggernaut. Holy the vast lamb of the middle class. Holy the crazy shepherds of rebellion who dig Los Angeles. Holy New York, holy San Francisco, holy Peoria, and Seattle. Holy Paris, holy Tangiers, holy Moscow, holy Istanbul. Holy time and eternity, holy eternity and time. Holy the clocks in space, holy the fourth dimension. Holy the fifth international, holy the angel in Moloch. Holy the sea, holy the desert, holy the railroad, holy the locomotive. Holy the visions, holy the hallucinations, holy the miracles. Holy the eyeball, holy the abyss, holy forgiveness, mercy, charity, Faith, holy, ours, bodies, suffering, magnanimity, holy the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. Everything is holy. I think this poem is a better translation of the second term of the Yoga Sutra. Everything is holy. The chitta vrittis, your distractions, your anxieties, your neuroses, your sadness, your loneliness, your anger, none of these are things to get rid of. These are all patterns in the mind, in the body, and in the inherited cultural body and mind um, that we learn how to work with 
but not to get rid of. And I think sometimes when we idealize our spiritual practice or our meditation practice, we determine what can be accepted and what's not holy. And Allen Ginsberg reminds us here that everything is holy, that the chitta vrittis are not something to get rid of. And I don't know about you, but especially on retreat, I've often measured my success in my practice by how much I'm distracted. And this is a recipe for suffering. Because it's the condemning mind that's determining what's of value and what we're condemning. And so I hope as the text goes on, we can see how there's a way of reading the text where we're kind of valuing yoga as some godlike perfection, or seeing yoga as a kind of intimacy that's messy and slippery and um, smelly, you know, because it's easy when we're on retreat in northern Ontario and everything's quiet. It's easy to practice there. But here we are with ambulances and streetcars and an air show. You know. Have you tried practicing in Parkdale during the snowbirds? <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, your practice is at the heart of where um, uh, we find difficulty not just where things are peaceful and perfect. And so this will be our uh, way of looking at the Yoga Sutra so that it can really help us in our life. I've had so many teachers, I shouldn't record this part, but it's the last thing I'll say. But you know, I've had so many amazing teachers, some from this country, some from Tibet, some from Nepal, some from India, And, you know, at some point a couple of years ago, I had the realization during uh, one workshop that I was in, a retreat that I was on, that some teachers were saying things that were so true, you know, like the sky is blue. (laughs) And you can't argue it's true, you know, or the nature of your mind is pure awareness. And it's true, you know. Um, But just because something is true, I came to feel, it doesn't mean that it's relevant. So, yes, the sky is blue, but in the foreground, um, the fish are not doing so well. And the air show is driving me crazy. And my son can't go to sleep because he's nervous for school. And I'm frustrated because I want to go to sleep. And so... In a way, it's not so much trying to find the, ba- the basic truth of things, but also trying to practice in a way that's relevant for you um, so that you can feel this sense of yoga in a sustained way in your life, not just in brief moments on retreat um, or in insights that you have on LSD in Tofino. Or forever. <laughs> Any questions, comments, or observations? Yeah. Yeah, you made me see something really beautiful that I just want to share with you guys. I'll, I'll make it really quickly. Uh-huh. Quick. 
But you know, I never, uh, you know, cheat that. Uh -huh. I never thought of consciousness like um, you have two things. Rather, uh, you have this ability, like a receptor, and then the stimulus, okay? Yeah. And, you know, when we meditate, so when we go so deep, we can see so many processes of the body and yeah. uh, the cells, and, you know, there's always the receptor and the thing that locks into it. Yeah. And you made me understand that. That, well, we know consciousness is on a microscopic scale as well. And uh -huh. I think I can see more clearly now how that is. And, you know, there's always that space between the receptor and the thingy that goes in it. Yes. And I feel like when we really get to that nirodaha, um, uh -huh. where it's, it stops. That's the space between, like samadhi. Yes. When there's, there is stillness, there is nothing because there's no consciousness, there's no conceptualization because they didn't put yes. it. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And, and, and Patanjali, uh, towards the end of the first chapter, is going to talk about that space in great, great detail. So that spatial way of uh, thinking about it is really helpful. Anybody else? Comments, questions? Yeah. What about awareness uh, versus consciousness? Yeah, we're setting up a vocabulary that distinguishes the two. So we haven't talked about awareness yet, but we're going to set up a vocabulary where there's the distinction between awareness and consciousness, that they're not the same thing. And I would say that in Western philosophy, psychology, and the way we operate in our day-to-day -day language, we don't have a separation between what awareness and consciousness are. It's a little bit messy. And uh, the whole first chapter is devoted to talking about kaivalya. Yeah. And so is the fourth chapter, which is the distinction between awareness and consciousness, which is pretty cool. And helpful for those of us that meditate. Or sufferate. Is that a word? Aaron? Yes. Separate? <laughs> What's a suffragette? It's my presenting idea at the moment. One more question or comment and then we're going to finish... Yeah, so, so when you're practicing this week, we talked a lot last week about developing a meditation practice every day, um, how to open in such a way to the breath and to sound. So the body is open, and what tends to happen in practice when we start concentrating is things start to close down a little bit. Things sometimes get a little bit tight. So how to make sure in the practice that as you're deepening your concentration, there's a sense of openness and receptivity and relaxation so that when distractions are showing up, it's perfectly fine. That's just the natural world moving through awareness. That these chitta vrittis are not something to get rid of. So sometimes if you're a little bit frustrated in your practice, maybe there's a kind of condemnation going on. There's an attitude you might have that's trying to change the way something's being presented but you don't actually have control over what's being presented 
that unfortunately that's not up to you. And um, so it's important really to check your attitude about what's showing up. Is it an attitude of aversion or of equanimity? And this is so key in our practice. And you can remind yourself that everything is holy. Everything's sacred. Even the snowbirds. So let's finish chanting, and then I have a few announcements to make. 